Welcome listeners to a new installment of the 2020 season of Praxis. If this is your first episode, you can check out the trailer or previous episodes for more context on the show. The easiest way to find those, including show notes and full transcripts, is by subscribing. You can do that anywhere you listen to podcasts or by going directly to praxisradio.com and clicking on Praxis. This season is a revisitation of a radio show road trip I took in the summer of 2015. I wanted to come back to those I met and interviewed then in the light of the past five years, not only because of the Trump administration, but because of the patterns that challenged our movements to address climate change and systemic racism specifically that already loomed large in our minds back then and will continue in a different form during a Biden administration too. I'm recording this introduction on Sunday, November 8th, and while I'm relieved, the exhausting week of election uncertainty has reminded me more than anything of the importance of deep community-based long-haul organizing like what we're going to hear about today, and really on the rest of the show. Being from the West, I started this journey driving down the coast from Portland to the Bay Area. I connected with a bunch of rad folks all through California, but I'm going to spend this week somewhere I only spent a couple of hours as I passed through on my way south at an oil train protest in Richmond. I recorded some speeches, took some photos, and schmoozed with no time to fully interview any of the great squad of hundreds assembled that day. Five years later, I did some deep internet prowling to find as many of the rally speakers as I could. Environmental justice warriors that works in the communities of color and bands different people of all cultures, ages together for this cause. Please welcome Ratha from the Sierra Club. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for coming out on this march. And uh, let's give it a round of applause for uh, Megan, Apen, who helped organize. My name is Ratha. I'm a community organizer for the Sierra Club San Francisco Bay Chapter. Uh, I feel really privileged to be out here with all the with all of you people out here and uh, to stop these oil trains. Uh, when I first I live in Richmond, when I first started hearing about these oil trains, I was just absolutely dumbfounded. Like, is this really happening? And to dive more deeper and deeper into it, it's like falling through Al- uh, Alice's in Wonderland's rabbit hole. Right? You find out it's fracking, that it's coming out, it's tar sands, it's coming in. And there's all these different uh, intersections of, of where it is. And the intersection that we're finding out is it's right here in the Bay Area. Uh, we have so much agency to stop so much global pollution and global uh, environmental injustice. Uh, one of the other things that's been happening in Richmond is coal. Uh, coal has been coming in here since 2012. It's one of the biggest uh, polluters to GHGs. And, um, and the coal gets shipped to third world countries like Mexico. Not third world countries, but the countries that don't have um, regulations that uh, require better air quality, than, like California does. So, something that I heard Eduardo Martinez say, Richmond City, uh, Richmond City Council member said, is why are we shipping this stuff out to other places that we wouldn't burn ourselves? Exactly. And that's something that has really stuck with me. And it's really, it's, it's all of it. It's the oil trains and it's the coal. And it's right here, it's right now. It starts with you. It starts with intention, uh, with the intentionality that this, that we have to go into a just transition into a new world, and it, and and that's it. You know, that's that's really that's really it. It's about being intentional, reaching out to others that, that who you talk to, and just growing this movement much more. Um, thank you very much. I'm gonna pass this back to Stephanie. And uh, if you haven't signed one of my petitions, come, come through. I want to shout out to Rafa Lai, who you just heard, for being super patient. 
Our first interview taken this summer ended up being completely unusable, and he agreed just Friday during a stressful election week to re-record. He was amazing. Thank you again, Rafa. And here is what he had to say. All right. Uh, do you want to cue me in? Sure. Yeah. So when I, I didn't meet you, but we were at, you were giving a speech and you were with the Sierra Club at the time at this rally against oil trains in Richmond. And yeah, I guess I'm just curious, what have you been up to since then in the last five years uh, in a condensed form? And yeah, where, where are you now? Yeah, Taylor, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Yeah, so my name is Rotha Lai, and I'm currently the founder and executive director of Critical Impact Consulting. And my journey since that speech has been <clears throat> pretty eventful and <laughs> been, at least with my professional journey, has led me through a lot of different coalitions and stuff like that. So like during that speech, I was an organizer with the Sierra Club and that was during 2015. And so right before that speech was the 2014 elections where Chevron poured in like over $4 million into Richmond because Progressive had rose up to challenge Chevron because of this massive fire that happened two years ago. So that massive fire is known as the 2012 Chevron fire. You know, it sent over 15,000 people to the hospital. Where I was at that time in 2012 was I recently just graduated UC Berkeley. I was, uh, um, I had transferred from my community college in Cerritos College. So go Falcons and go Bears. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I landed a job with the Greenlining Institute at that time, which was a racial justice policy institute. And so that big fire happened and had just moved in with, I just moved in with my partner at the time into Richmond. And yeah, it was huge. It was like the most enormous fire ever. Fast forward to about two years later, I found myself looking for work and the Sierra Club was hiring for an organizer position. And I, I took the job and the job was basically go to Richmond and organize against Chevron, mm -hmm. join this crazy coalition of the Richmond Progressive Alliance. And I like was able to really step in and help out Eduardo Martinez, who's currently on the city council member now, Jovanka Beckles, who uh, just won a seat to be on the AC Transit Board Director, and Gail McLaughlin, who also just won uh, right now city council for Richmond again. And so I had got on that campaign and the Sierra Club everyone won in, the, in that campaign that was a huge community effort it wasn't just the sierra club it was also like every organization in richmond like i got a really great first hand look at what a grassroots organizing campaign or what what a community can do when they're fed up with the system that they're in and they want change mm -hmm. and what happens is like the communities get fed up people rise up, leaders step up, and the community starts supporting them. And then you start getting leaders that are from the community and for the community. So that speech that happened was, you know, with the oil trains, we had oil trains coming into Richmond at that time. Yeah, so I was organizing against the oil trains and was starting to be more involved in the environmental justice movement in Richmond. 
Um, before that, with greenlining, I had done a lot of different stuff. I was like looking at the education system. I was also looking at voting rights, actually, which is really interesting too. It plays into a whole other aspect now, which back in 2012, we were looking, we were starting to research at the different types of voter suppression tactics and strategies that were getting ready to get mounted on. And mm -hmm. 20, now, was eight years later, definitely seeing that full in effect yeah. and still seeing like the resilience in that, you know? So like, I think that, you know, doesn't really get covered much. The fact, <laughs> the fact that the voter suppression here in, in this country is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyway, after that speech, I started working for basically every, everybody else. I think I kind of kept myself as a community organizer my hat kind of changed around, but I was always in Richmond. And so I went from the Sierra Club and I worked on the Refinery Caps campaign. And so the Refinery Caps campaign was a campaign to cap refinery pollution at today's level, right? Simple ass. Like, mm -hmm. can we just not make the pollution get worse? This was back in 2014. So we were like, look, climate change is real pollution sucks our people are dying people get 10 years or more shaven off their life at the tail end of their life people's quality of life suffers people have to deal with asthma or respiratory illnesses are vulnerable are subject to one con a constant level of sub healthy air quality and mm -hmm. then on top of that you know whenever the refinery has a, an incident or an event like a flaring issue which it flares very, very often, all those chemicals get released into the air and they don't get tracked by the air district. There are loopholes in terms of where flaring is a necessity for refineries because if they don't flare, they'll blow up, basically. Hmm. Seems safe and fine, yeah. yeah. So on the outset of the need to be able to preserve their, their refinery structure, they will have to flare. So if there's too much stuff in there, they'll, they'll just burn it all out. And that's flaring is, is when we see those huge columns of fire of smoke into the air. And then it burns a whole bunch of stuff. So I would, for anyone listening, I would look into the communities for a better environment. They have, <clears throat> for those years, they were able to, they had a great scientist, Greg Karras, who kept track and was able to provide tons and tons of reports. Um, they have a great flaring report in terms of how all the different chemicals that don't get tracked. So a lot, a lot of cool stuff. Well, a lot of frightening stuff too. Well, right? yeah, yeah. About how invisible, but I mean, yeah. I have, I have a, sorry to interrupt the, the linear nature of this, but I have a question just thinking about this last summer and, mm -hmm. you know, the summers before too, with the wildfires in California, what, what's the increased risk? I mean, having all this oil sitting around and all these refineries and all that infrastructure, is there anything, I mean, that's scary, right? I'm not. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I, what we're looking at, I think is we're looking at our entire infrastructure going through a change, whether we like it or not. There's enough external circumstances between climate change, the supply of oil, the demand, the political demand of communities becoming more organized to transition ourselves for the existing infrastructure right now to be what it is what you're saying is 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 really risky and really viable to 
a whole bunch of threats in a number of ways. And those ways are like, one, if there is an earthquake or something that happens near a refinery or anything else like that, what happens to the spills? What happens, like who's on the hook for the cleanup? There's issues like that. There's also other issues in terms of with the wildfire. When the wildfire was out and it was completely blanketed, we were getting reports from, or I was talking with my neighbors and and other community members about Chevron pouring more excessive pollution out into the air because it can't really be seen. Mm. And so I think regardless of all of that, we're still looking at an infrastructure that is not equipped with the changing environment that we're dealing. And these wildfires are getting worse. We're about to enter into the winter season where um, our mudslides and things are going to be our next priority issues. And so we're in a state of situation where we're going to have to constantly respond to our next different climate crisis and climate scenario. Mm -hmm. And the industry for California and especially for you know, what I would say for communities in the pathway of profit for the oil industry, it's really imperative because this is where all of their major infrastructural pieces are in terms of how the oil industry is laid out, right? Mm -hmm. California has 13 refineries in California and it's designed that way, right? So like when I used to talk to people like, oh, why didn't they put the refineries in the desert where it wouldn't pollute anybody? It would cost way too much money to to move that oil to the desert where all their money is made in terms of export and import, right? Mm -hmm. You import the oil from outside, you export it, you refine it, and you export it. There's a whole oil market for it. And California is in that pathway of profit. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we see so much strategic political pressure by oil industries and other industries abroad to squash down frontline communities, you know, and that plays into like my next part was when I transferred from the Sierra Club into the Asian Pacific Environmental Network, I was able to still work on that campaign because that campaign was a coalition effort. And so just being able to bring in community members who were refugees who settled into Richmond and are like suffering because of the poor impacts and quality impacts. And I think one of the hardest things is like being able to talk to elders and community members and trying to explain to them why the government is recommending more studying and data collection as they can witness and see community members die. And we have literally seen an institution weather itself and rather see its constituents and people that it's supposed to support slowly die from air quality and air pollution and still try to uphold what they have to do. And I think the agency at play is the Bay Area Air Quality Management District. And I do have colleagues and friends and people I really do like at the agency and at the district. But at the same time, I think I still have to call out the agency for its process in terms of holding that rule up and holding the refinery caps rule up and in terms of how that rule played out. So that rule 
lasted about that campaign lasted about four years it spanned from i don't know it even spanned from my time it was a really long time and i think it went into near 2017 and 2018 and that is when jerry brown was still in office for california he was about to leave so when politicians are about to leave they are usually looking to make a mark, do something, right? Mm-hmm. Every politician, you know, when they're, when they're out, you know, they like to think of themselves as being able to ride off into the sunset. Mm-hmm. Uh, problem with Jerry Brown was in this campaign, we in the Bay Area had, I don't know, I think we had well over 50 organizations we spanned across nine counties. We had countless signatures. Yeah, we had everybody from doctors, nurses, refinery experts. We even had one of the local refinery workers union all in support of capping refinery pollution so that way we can start the path to a just transition. And this was back in 2014 and 2015, around the same time of that speech. Mm-hmm. And so now that we're in 2020, to recognize and see that communities had always been asking for this type of change and for us to really have to face against the crisis that we're in now really shows like where our politicians priorities have been all those times you know yeah and and I think uh yeah so I think that's something where a lot of community members are really bitter because at the end of that rule that rule actually got passed and I will give credit to the agency because the board members at that time, we had a lot of amazing allies, a lot of amazing board allies, allies like Eric Marr, John Avalos. And um, yeah, twenty. there was like 24 board members and, and I apologize, I won't be able to. No, it's remember, all good. Remember all the allies, like Katie Rice and Marin, and then John Joya was another, is a great ally too. So for all of them to be able to rally around and get this out. Like I really saw this, this play out in terms of how the oil industry will really protect their profit immensely. So long story short, with that campaign, how it came to an end was we got that campaign passed, two-step process, two weeks in between. First step, it passed, everybody celebrated. And the next process was the, the executive director staff, Jack Broadbent, would have to stamp it and approve it. And then in that process, the oil industry went to Governor Brown. And as part of Governor Brown's riding off to the sunset with his new cap and trade renewal deal, AB398, part of that was this 10-point plan where the oil industry would get a list of 10 favors, essentially, that would write off. On one of those lists was that local air districts would not be able to regulate greenhouse gases, which is, which is basically destroyed our whole campaign and put, and put that rule on ice. Because it, it basically said, oh, we, we, this is out of our agency's jurisdiction. We can no longer rule on, on this. Now, mind you, that greenhouse gas is a key word for, you know, I mean, everybody understands greenhouse gases and its impact on climate change and its global impact, but also, and, you know, I'll, I'll encourage folks to look into communities for a better environment. Again, there's co-pollutants that are not tracked, mm-hmm. co-pollutants that cause cancers like benzene 
and a whole list of things that will be that will make a very funny video if I try to pronounce it right now. Sure, yeah. <laughs> My daughter would love to see that. See you try to pronounce all the chemicals. Yeah. yeah. But, so, I mean, I think that's a pattern that people all around the country are going to be familiar with if they've had to go up against any major industry, especially the polluters. One thing I wanted to touch on, you talked about the coalition work and um, also, you know, m- moving to work with APEN, Asian Pacific Environmental Network. And then, you know, the other folks I've talked to from down there talk about the fact that Richmond itself is about like, is a very like multiracial, like cross-class, like working class organized place. Can you just talk about, I guess I'm curious, what do you think other movements in other places can learn from y'all's, from your wins and from your challenges, especially in terms of that like multiracial, like cross-class coalition work? Yeah, I think with APEN, I was a Richmond Our Power Coalition Coordinator from 2016 to 2019. What our intention was for there was, was let's take a look at our, who's in our community, who's being harmed by the extractive economy. And I would encourage our folks who aren't familiar with the Just Transition Framework to check out Movement Generation. They have a great website. They have awesome and amazing staff. They have an incredible amount of teaching materials, really great videos that you can learn about just transition. In a nutshell, the extractive economy impacts and harms a lot of folks. So how this played out in Richmond from an environmental justice perspective that needed to build a coalition to one, address Chevron, but still build real power for the community. And one of the things was, how do we look at our community and what's harming our community? So a great example I'll bring in was we had the Safe Return Project. So the Safe Return Project is an organization that works to end mass incarceration in our era. And they are based out of Richmond and Contra Costa, and they focus on recruiting formerly incarcerated individuals to be part of their program and organizing and organize public policy and campaigns. And we brought them into the coalition to work. And they're actually one of my current clients I work with right now. And also shout out to Tamisha Walker, who's the executive director for a Safe Return Project and is also running for Antioch District 1. And we had a chance to uh, work together for the campaign and results are still coming in. There's still about 3,000 votes in, and it's a super, super close race. There's only 50 votes that that um, close in between her oh and the incumbent. Incredible, incredible, amazing women. And so, yeah, so I think what we really were intentional about was like, let's look at our community and let's bring everybody together. Let's bring everybody together. Let's talk about the issues. So we didn't have everybody at first. And so we had to do a series of just getting the word out, you know, providing information, going to different communities and doing community presentations on a just transition. And the just transition framework was really, really allowed us to bring in others into our movement and and others into understanding like, okay, let's do let's come together for a just transition because it can be a broad coalition that impacts everybody, right? Mm -hmm. And like I said, the just transition framework targets being, there's a lot to it, but in a nutshell, it targets past harms that have been done into the community 
So how do we repair past harms and how do we move away from the systems that cause those, those harms? And those are called extractive economies. And how do we move away from those into a regenerative economy, into an economy where our relationships with each other are sustainable and supportive and not extractive, right? Where it doesn't really take, where it doesn't take from each other, but instead it, it helps and supports each other. And so that was something that everybody was able to um, really see themselves in. And so that's how we were able to bring a coalition um, and have a, an organization that ends mass incarceration, join a coalition for environmental justice. Mm -hmm. And I would say that for other communities in America, every community is different, right? And I think our process that we did that can be helpful for folks is not like, I think what would not be good is to uh, have a diversity checklist. Mm -hmm. So no offense, I'm just speaking to white allies out there. If you have a diversity checklist, put it down, throw it away. That's not the way to go. <laughs> you mean as in like, we need someone from this group and someone from this group. That's what you mean? Yes. yes. Cool. Just, just yeah. clarifying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't do that. A lot of people will think having a multiracial coalition, you know, having this, having this, like, no, go into the community, do the canvassing, do the organizing work, be humble, have the conversations, find the people who are doing the work and start building the coalition that way. It takes time. It takes effort. All coalitions are messy, but that's okay. Um, I think as people support each other and understand it builds collective power and people people will understand and, and respect that. And I think that's how that's how coalitions can get formed. And I think it's a willingness to, I think it's a great combination for people who are starting coalitions because I think people will get stuck into creating meetings, like monthly meetings, bi-weekly meetings. And then all of a the sudden there'll just be like this, this ragtag group of, of individuals that have been super hyper-focused working on a campaign, which is super awesome. And at the same time, it's there's a missing element of community organizing, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. so, so being able to really have events. So for the coalition, it was great because the coalition was formed by several other community organizations. So community organizations like Urban Tilth that does like um, farming enrichment, and they do a, a CSA community source agriculture. So they actually grow food in Richmond. They, their story is incredible in terms of how they took over land and they you know, worked in partnerships and then now transformed land that was unusable into land that's farmed and given out. It's through their community source agriculture program. So people can pay into it. They get fre uh, fresh fruits and, and vegetables. There's a sliding scale. So our community starts to get fed. That's in the food desert. Mm -hmm. And other organizations like Rich City Rides that does bike rides on Sundays for communities. So to create peace, safety, and a place for children and a lot of other organizations. So, But just actually being like present out there, visible. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. So don't be like a ragtag group of individuals. Like really try to find organizations that are there and create a space. And so I think this is the harder part because a lot of coalitions are really hard to form because they aren't necessarily resourced or funded. So I think a lot of nonprofits and organizations get funded specifically to do their work. 
So if you have funders who are listening, you know, I have a whole, we could do a whole other episode. <laughs> yeah. Their problems. Where like, Rafa sends the money. Yeah. 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 But uh, yeah, I mean, for the fact that, you know, most coal, there's not very much resources into coalition building. Mm-hmm. Try building something without screws. But yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, the other thing I wanted to just make sure that I ask you, you, you know, you talked about your kid, you talked about being a parent. And I wonder if I'm always curious, like, you know, people who are involved in social justice work, it's it's tiring and it's hard. And I, I like to ask people about what gives them hope and without that being trite. So I wonder if like in the context of being a parent doing this kind of work, especially around climate change, like how does that relationship drive your work and also what makes you hopeful or inspires you to kind of stay involved in this? Yeah, um, good question. I think it's a mix between inspiring and maddening. <laughs> and uh, yeah, in terms of like looking at, because I think as a parent, I'm hyper aware that my daughter, or I'm going to model after my daughter, right? Because that's, you know, kids learn through situational learning right they'll learn mm-hmm. in their situation in their environments and they'll learn from the people around them and so my daughter has really been a driving force to make me a better person in looking at myself and um, where I have to grow and you know I also appreciate other places in my life where I've had that as well but my daughter has definitely challenged me to grow and constantly look at myself and to find you know parts where I have to I have to grow and I think part of the hardest things is really having a a healthy mindset and outlook and part of that I believe is being able to dream and being able to dream about your future I think is really a, a real privilege and is really hard to do, especially for people who are in, when we are in an era where so many people are suffering and so many people are, are in a state of survival, it becomes really hard for, for children to have a dream. And I think for, for children who are then even exposed to like say violence or trauma, it can it can have a real impact, right? And so when I was doing some organizing with the Sunrise Movement and looking at their youth, I think I, I was speaking at a rally or something, the youth were really hopeless. They couldn't dream about living past 20, 21. And these were nine, 10, 11 year olds. And I can't remember if my daughter was at that protest rally or not, but it broke my heart. It literally broke my heart. I mean, I, I had to go speak after these kids. And so the, the kids spoke and then I think they wanted me to be like an inspiring, the, the inspiring speaker or something like that. But mm-hmm. that that totally didn't happen. <laughs> it was like balloon deflated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so that's, I think that's something that I kind of work with now is like, how do I, 
model myself and look at the world, different situations that I'm in, and how do I face those challenges in a way that I can be proud of that, you know, if my daughter were in my shoes, how would I want her to kind of handle these situations, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so as as easy as it can be to fall into despair, for me, I feel like I have to keep trying. And so even now in my role as a consultant, I'm still kind of doing the same work as a community organizer, to be honest. I just do it at a different level and I do it with more with more people and, mm-hmm. and more of my friends and in different type of settings and stuff. So I think that's just something I've been really mindful of is how do we how do I help my daughter grow up in this era and be conscious and be mindful and yet still have her not like feel the anxiety that I have Mm -hmm. so I I don't know I think that's tricky so I'm still working well I think that's a good framework for everybody you know like I said we're gonna get kicked off of here um (laughs) do you have any final parting words and you know, I definitely would encourage people to look up the It Takes Roots Alliance. Um, I did the Solidarity to Solutions a Week of Action. So a lot of great stuff came out of came out of that. You know, plays a lot into this uh, conversation. Indigenous Environmental Network, Climate Justice Alliance, Right to the City Alliance, and the Grassroots Global Justice Alliance. Cool. Yeah, and then if you want to check out Our Power Richmond, that's ourpowerrichmond.org. And uh, yeah, if you want to reach me, you can check out criticalimpactconsulting.com. Cool. And then uh, my email is Ratha, R-A-T-H-A, at criticalimpactconsulting.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck down there watching your local elections, which sound more nail-biting than even the national one. Yes. And shout out to my local election colleagues, you know, Melvin Willis, Claudia Jimenez, Gail McLaughlin, they all won in Richmond, Javanka Beckles, I mentioned earlier, Latifa Simon for Bartboard, Taylor Sims, who won in Pittsburgh, Luz Gomez, who won in San Ramon City Council. And then mm-hmm. I might be missing a couple of more, but I think <laughs> one of the coolest things was like in this election was seeing so many people who have been community organizers and been part of the community stepping up to be elected officials and winning elections. That was dope. So being able to <laughs> look at my local ballot. Oh, Carol Fife too in Oakland who who just won city council too. I'm a shout out to all my Oakland uh, colleagues out there. I mean, nearby Contra Costa, but yeah. Cool. So, so many awesome folks. I think when when folks are getting organized you know like looking at your local elections it makes the elections way better way way better than see your friends yeah yeah than the options given with the national elections or yeah word well thank you again and yeah okay awesome okay thanks again Bye. bye big thanks again to ratha After being so sick of election season and so frustrated with the pathetic failures of the Democratic Party these last years, it's been really reassuring to see that grassroots candidates, like that huge list he just named, are winning because of their radical platforms and because of their integrity and genuine connections to their communities. At the same rally, where on a hot day a few hundred people had gathered in a park in view of one of the refineries, Ethan Buckner also spoke. He was then working with a group called Forest Ethics.
produce has been organizing uh, actions against coal trains, against all the environmental injustice um, uh, things that we have to worry about here in Richmond as, as well as up along the West Coast. And I've seen him in New York, I've seen him uh, different places. His name is Ethan Buckner with the Forest Ethics. What's going on, everybody? Um, my name is Ethan Buckner. I'm with Forest Ethics. And, uh, you know, we've talked a lot today about the dangers of oil trains, right? We know that oil trains are a disaster for public health. We heard from the nurses. We know that oil trains are a disaster for public safety. We've heard from our friends in Atchison Village and uh, all the way down to Parkchester Village and Martinez, folks who live along the rail lines who are at risk for a, a derailment or a disaster. We've also heard about how oil trains are a disaster for our climate and how this oil, this extreme oil, the tar sands, this Bakken crude from North Dakota needs to stay in the ground. But also, what I'm here to talk about today is the power of this movement and organizing that's happening today across the state and across the nation. This event today is part of the National Week of Action to Stop Oil Trains. There are over 90 events that have happened this week across the U.S. and Canada. And here today, there are over a dozen communities in California that are all right now taking action to stop oil trains. And the reason why? Because we know that this movement, when led from the grassroots, led by the folks who are most impacted by the oil trains that are coming into these communities, that we can win. I want to give a shout out to folks here from Benicia, California. Here from Benicia been fighting like hell for the past two years against the proposed oil train facility in Benicia at the Valero refinery. And has that been built yet? No! Because this community has fought back time and time again to stop that project, and we're going to continue to do so until it's done. Here in Richmond, here in Richmond, there are no oil trains coming in right now, and a big part of that is because of the organizing that's been happening, thanks to APEN and CBE and all the other leaders here in this community. In Pittsburgh, they proposed to build the biggest oil facility on the West Coast. Has that been built? No! If you go to Westpac's website, the company that proposed to build that project, it still reads, construction will end by the end of 2013. Not a single shovel in the ground. And that is thanks to this movement. And in San Luis Obispo, the company Phillips 66 has been trying to build another big oil train facility that would bring oil trains all the way from Alberta, Canada, the tar sands down through the Bay Area and along Ooh. the central coast. Ooh. Has that been built yet? No! Are we gonna let them do it? No! And we've got a statement of solidarity. These folks are rallying right now in San Luis Obispo. So now, in our conversation from August 20th, 2020, Ethan let me know the fate of those projects five years later, of the broader movement against moving dangerous fuel on American rail lines, and much more. Here's that interview. Since you're kind of a unique case because I didn't actually interview you in 2015 when I was on this trip, I just ended up at that rally and kind of like tucked away all these speeches and then tracked people down. So so in 2015, we didn't meet, but I was in Richmond, California, on this road trip and I only spent about I was only able to spend like six hours there and it happened to be a six hours that there was an oil trains rally and I recorded the speeches there I talked to a handful of people grabbed some business cards and then had to get back on the road so um, you were one of those people and at the time you were working with forest ethics so I'm wondering if you can just start by introducing yourself 
talking about what you were doing that day at this oil trains rally and what has happened since and what you're doing now. Uh, wonderful. My name is Ethan Buckner. I, in 2015, was sort of the height of a multi-year campaign to push back against an effort by the oil industry to expand their ability to receive some of the dirtiest and most volatile crude oil um, on the planet and enable the expansion of extraction in most places in, in North America. One of those places being the tar sands in Canada, this heavy sulfur crude that um, is part of the largest industrial project in the history of the earth. Folks might be familiar, more familiar with the Keystone XL pipeline and, and a long effort led by First Nations people to prevent further destruction of boreal forest and the extraction of this incredibly energy intensive and uh, water intensive and, and destructive form of oil extraction. Um, and then the second place is the Bakken in North Dakota. This is a, a shale uh, formation that was really in you know the early 2010s sort of extraction there exploded due to sort of advances in technology with fracking. And as these places expanded extraction, they needed ways to get oil to the shoreline um, where refineries and export terminals would help both process this oil and also move it to global markets. In Canada, successful campaigns to fight against massive pipelines like Keystone or Energy East um, or the Enbridge pipeline, you know, limited the, has continued to limit the industry's ability to expand. And in North Dakota, also struggled to build pipeline capacity. And so the solution for industry was to try to move massive, massive amounts of oil on railways um, via these mile-long oil trains. And, you know, this practice in, you know, in 2013 really uh, shed light on how dangerous this was um, when one of these oil trains like derailed and exploded in a small town in Canada, killed 47 people um, and burned half a downtown of that small town to the ground. Um, actually, finally, after many years, had the chance to visit that town in the summer of 2019, actually, and, and, and see some an old friend who I had worked with during this campaign and still a ghost of what it was. And so in California, there were about 11 or 12 of these facilities proposed at the time. And we, you know, of, of you know, grassroots environmental organizations and ally groups like Forest Ethics now, since that organization's changed its name to Stand.Earth, we realized that you know, the way that we were going to be able to defeat these facilities is by organizing communities to work together up and down the rail lines and put pressure on local governments that had land use authority over the decision on whether or not to build the facilities themselves, um, knowing that once those facilities are built, because rail traffic was regulated federally, there would be no way for communities most impacted by these oil trains to actually have a say in whether or not they traveled through densely populated areas. And our research about who is most impacted revealed, uh, unsurprisingly, that low-income communities of color most directly impacted by the pollution and public health and safety risk from this form of oil transport. So that day in 2015 was part of a, you know, on the anniversary of this major disaster in the town of Lac-Mégantic, Quebec, 
we've orga we organized, you know, uh, for a number of years, sort of a national week of action. Um, as not only in California, but other parts of the country were dealing with similar efforts by the oil industry to move this move oil by rail to up, you know, to the Gulf Coast, to the East Coast, to the West Coast, and, and many places in between. So that rally was a part of this national week of action. I think the next day, me and a few others tried to hang a 2,400 square foot banner off a highway bridge. Um, <laughs> had a lovely night in the Martinez County Jail for that one. Um, <laughs> you know, continued our efforts. And really, I am so grateful to have had the chance to work on that campaign. You know, we really, because of just the way that you know, where the railroads, you know, connect all sorts of communities, you know, we had the chance to work with, um, you know, incredible, you know, these incredible organizers who, who have built the environmental justice movement in California and Richmond, you know, like the folks at Communities for a Better Environment or the Asian Pacific Environmental Network. And, you know, these incredible legacy organizers to folks in communities who had never dealt with the fossil fuel industry before, small towns, working class communities, um, and, you know, and even in some cases, more conservative places that where, you know, folks may not have shared political views with us, but didn't want their kids going to a school right next to, uh, you know, potentially explosive mm -hmm. uh, oil train. Yeah, no one wants a giant bomb to derail in their town it turns yeah, out yeah right? exactly yeah um and these disasters like continue to happen there are like seven or eight like high profile explosions and thankfully none of, none of them as devastating in terms of loss of life as the one in canada but you know definitely like at that point the sense of urgency around it was pretty high and you know amazingly over the next you know year and a half after that after that rally, you know, we were able to, you know, pass dozens of resolutions in impacted towns, organize residents across the state to show up at hearings, leverage all those impacts to, to throw, you know, legal and regulatory challenges against these facilities. And um, we stopped all of them. The Venetia Planning Commission and City Council unanimously voted to against the granting, you know, Valero their land use permit there. The San Luis, and shortly after, you know, the San Luis Obispo County Board of Supervisors, uh, which was a Republican-controlled body, and they had so much pressure from locals that they did the same, and they shot down the facility there. And the, you know, the that Westpac, the company in Pittsburgh, California, pulled out and didn't even, you know, follow through on their plan. And so we were we were able to push back and and prevent this sort of flood of oil from coming into California and. Uh, it was a, a pretty amazing to be a part of this sort of people-powered series of campaigns that led to all of these victories. Yeah, and it's honestly, as someone who is both an organizer and has covered organizing, it's sadly rare. I wouldn't say it's never, but to, to have like a cut and dry, like we did this and then we won. I mean, would you say that you won? Like what, what has happened overall with kind of that fuel export side of the environmental movement since then at a more macro scale? Yeah. I mean, on a more macro scale, it's interesting. So after those campaigns wrapped, I actually, I switched jobs. I, I um, decided to go work for a group called Earthworks. And that's where I still work as a campaigner and go from, you know, organizing in California where there certainly there are very long, uh, long standing oil interests that 
play a very significant role in sort of the political landscape in, in California, but there's also a lot of progressive communities. There's a lot of uh, California environmental law is fairly strong compared to a lot of the rest of the country. And went from there to working on fighting, you know, oil and gas, petrochemical facilities and pipelines in America's heartland um, in the wake of a Trump victory. Uh, I found myself, you know, working with you know, black indigenous uh, communities, working class communities in Louisiana and Texas and Pennsylvania and Ohio in hostile political environments and trying to <laughs> organize, uh, you know, in in places that also have been sort of historically under-resourced by the environmental movement, not only in places that also have been hardest hit by environmental injustice and industry. And I'm still doing that work. Most of my work now is focused really on preventing, trying to prevent the expansion of what is now the largest oil field on the planet in the Permian Basin in West Texas and Southeast New Mexico, and try to work with communities on the Gulf Coast who are now fighting about a, a seven or eight massive proposed oil export terminals and another dozen or so natural gas or you know LNG export facilities and another half dozen or more you know massive petrochemical plants in places like Cancer Alley have just been in Louisiana have been hit so hard by um, industry for a long long time and are also dealing with massive inequities in terms of COVID and, and, and other things so it's it's a, it's an issue in terms of like in terms of export, that is where the industry sees its future in terms of expansion. And I think that in terms of California, that the door so far is still closed. And we've been able to at least wall off access to the West Coast. Um, although I know there are still ongoing battles in the Pacific Northwest um, mm -hmm. around those issues. But I know there's, there's also a lot of success there, too. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, it's interesting to see the way it's kind of morphed and changed. And tragically, the fossil fuel industry has not crumbled since then. But just kind of changing gears a little bit in in the speech that, you know, I heard there and, you know, it was echoed by a lot of people. And I think folks who are in the movement know this, that the important thing is to to stay involved once you get involved. So I guess just how for you on a personal level and then also in the communities that you're entering as an organizer and becoming part of in that sense, how do you sustain yourself over time doing this pretty draining, intense work? And what would you share with other people who are maybe newer or who are maybe facing burnout during these uh, very rough years? This is, these are really wonderful and <laughs> questions to reflect on. Um, how do I sustain myself? I mean, I, I'm outside of my work as an activist and a musician. I, I write, perform like indie folk songs and keeping sort of that space for creative reflection and having that outlet has been absolutely crucial for me over the years and is still an enormous part of my life. I think when I you know first became really you know politicized, I mean, in high school, college, and when I first started in my work uh, afterwards, you know, the sense of, of, of like of urgency, everything is going to collapse and I have to be a part of everything, you know, it's really, really strong. And I think it could be conducive to like, you know, running yourself into the ground and not that I've by any means mastered the like art of balance, but I think that it's important, you know, getting involved to 
to recognize that you know we're we're building a movement and we need to create space for so many people to to take on leadership to get involved and can't be everything all of the time um mm-hmm. and so you know caring for practicing care and, and care as a also a, a political act you know is is really important and caring for those around you caring for yourself caring for communities that you're you're a part of i think is is really really an important piece to that yeah absolutely and i think that's a that's a really common thing as i've interviewed people over the years is there's a lot of of artists who also do you know the art of organizing it's kind of a social practice in some ways but there's a lot of folks who who do exactly that like make music and make visual art and everything so so something i would have asked if i interviewed you in 2015 i was asking everyone these same three questions so I'll just ask them now instead because maybe your answers are similar. But I get the first one is what makes you the most frustrated? What makes me the most frustrated? Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> let me just think on that one. Yeah. I think there's an extent to which on the left, folks can be really focused on sort of ideological or performative victory over moving and gaining, building real material power and sort of create sort of, of an echo chamber where it's more important to be sort of ideologically right than it is to win. Um, and I think that one of the things that that we have to craft and learn as a movement is how to be true to our principles and our vision for the world that we know we need and deserve while creating space to move other people into action people who don't necessarily like at first glance have like a you know a really in-depth critical political analysis that we might have developed over time um, and I think that res- the responsibility for that, especially among like white folks, is really, really strong. Like, you know, I think that it's, I would encourage other white folks to not unfriend the person who's saying problematic things in your Facebook feed and maybe take some time to have some difficult conversations and and work to try and, and move people. And because we're going to, we're going to need to do that. We're going to need to do that difficult work of engaging with people and and building a broad-based movement if we're going to defeat, you know, fascism and authoritarianism, which threatens to, you know, erode the very sort of fabric of the already extremely weak democracy that we have in this country. Um, And so I think we just need to be really real with ourselves about that as we, you know, continue to push for the world that we need. Yeah. And then, so the flip side of that is what gives you the most hope the uprisings for racial justice right now has given me a tremendous amount of hope as I've seen so many people who would like previously maybe would have never shown up at a, at a march or never considered themselves a quote unquote activist, just like become completely activated by this political moment and how it's, you know, pushed for radical reckoning of systemic racism and police violence in this country the energy that's there and the potential that exists within that capacity to mobilize to me is profoundly hopeful 
um, and is really sustaining me right now. Yeah. And, and I wonder, you touched on this a little bit, but I come from originally from a environmental activism background also. And that was kind of my first issue based thing. And you, you talked about this, talking about your current work that it has historically been a very white space and a very, um, I don't know what the other word, but it's been a very white space, the, the public facing, like outward looking environmental movement as that has existed. Um, so how do you think, how has climate work changed um, and how can climate activism kind of dovetail in with this racial justice uprising that's happening and where do you see those issues aligning? So I guess I would first say that, you know, indigenous communities, communities of color have been doing incredible quote unquote environmental work for generations mm -hmm. and the resourced quote unquote environmental movement that comes from the legacy of you know the conservation movement the john muirs and you know the sort of the, the legacy of sort of white supremacy and racism in the modern environmental movement is having a reckoning and has been for quite some time and this particular moment has pushed that even further to understand that like the leadership the vision uh, from community, BIPOC communities and the folks who are, are most impacted by, you know, pollution, extractive industry, it's, that leadership is necessary in order for us to, to build the world that we need. Um, and uh, the root causes of these, of the climate crisis, of plastic pollution, of all of the, you know, intertwined environmental crises we face are the same root causes of systemic you know, systemic or systemic racism, it's extractive capitalism, it's heteropatriarchy, it's, it's all of these things. And we need to uplift in a lot of times cases, get out of the way so that those voices who have been, you know, at the forefront of this work for a long time can step in and lead us and we can leverage the resources and capacity and, and privilege that we have towards a systemic change. And I think within sort of the environmental nonprofits, you know, big NGO world, there's a lot of unraveling of like settler colonialism, of you know, that legacy um, that is being challenged and is being confronted in, I think, a really positive and constructive way. And there's a lot of work to be done so that our, our movement it's truly equitable and 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 has the the culture and the structure you know to give space for that leadership. Mm -hmm. I've I've really enjoyed kind of seeing. I've been kind of like just sideline peeping at at some of that that's going on publicly, especially you know the the decolonial aspect of it. So many of the ways that I think we're taught, we being like liberal white folks are taught to even think about like ideas of nature and that, you know, we somehow humans are in a managerial role with the earth just as a very like white supremacist concept. And what would it look like to have yeah. a, have an environmental activism that isn't centered on humans as this separate thing? Like even just that little thread could unravel everything in a positive way. So I totally mm -hmm. am glad to hear your, your take on that. And beyond that, I mean, what, 
that we, we touched on this too, but I just, I guess an opportunity to give specific shout outs. Who do you think is best articulating like where we're going? The, the left in general has, we're really good at saying no and don't always get around, especially when we're so embattled in times like this, like don't always get around to saying yes, like here's what we do want. Who do you think is articulating that vision really well right now? Like what projects or people do you want to give a shout out to? I mean, first and foremost, the Movement for Black Lives policy platform is an incredibly bold and intersectional vision for justice and equity in this country that would, you know, profoundly, if implemented, um, shift the balance of power and enable us to address climate change and racial injustice and economic inequality. And I just am blown away by the by that vision. I think there are, you know, the Green New Deal, and specifically, I think there's a, an articulation of the Green New Deal, which is really cool called the Gulf South for Green New Deal. It's a, a process that was anchored by a group that I deeply respect called the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy that brought kind of frontline communities from the five kind of Gulf states together to articulate what a Green New Deal would need to look like um, in order to reflect the culture and history priorities of workers and communities in that region. And uh, I think these types of real, this type of really, really deep articulation of a political vision for the future that, it, that is kind of regionally specific is, is really cool and, and really inspiring. Um, and as I'm doing a lot of work in that region, that's sort of what I look to for inspiration for that yes, as a lot of the work that I do is centered around fighting back the no. Mm -hmm. So yeah, those two for me right now are really, uh, I'm really, I'm really feeling it. Awesome. Cool. Well, um, I think that's that's about all I wanted to cover for sure. But is there anything else that you want to make sure to to mention? Anything I should have asked that I didn't? Um, any plugs that you want to plug of your own work? I just encourage folks who are getting involved to to stick with it. I mean, this is there is a really amazing quote by Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, who I am inspired by all the time, our visionary leadership and talking about hope as a practice. And it's something that we that we have to build and, and, and work on every day and 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 working to working for justice in our communities. And yeah, it's not something that we sort of can like, you know, glean from elsewhere. It's something mm -hmm. we need to put into practice every day. So these are these are momentous and critical times that we're living in and um, there's no sitting on the sidelines yeah definitely well uh thank you so much for for sticking with it yourself and for being willing to talk to me and awesome well appreciate you reaching out this is uh really wonderful to reflect on yeah five years ago and and whoever things are and definitely keep me posted on how your project is going I'd love to i will hear yeah i'm together cool thank you so much um, yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Rafa and Ethan for talking to a random person who stalked you online. And thanks to you all for listening. Making this season has been grounding for me during an election year. That's part of why I made it now. It helps me remember that social movements and radical change happen outside of the boundaries of party politics, and that they maintain across time and geography in ways that are far more lovely and interesting than voting alone could ever be. 
You can find links to all the projects and resources that both guests referenced today in the show notes below, along with a full transcript of the episode and more. If you like the show and want to hear more, the best way to do that is subscribe, which you can do by searching Praxis Radio anywhere you get your podcasts or by going to praxisradio.com, that's P-R-A-X-I-S-R-A-D-I-O, and clicking on Praxis. It would also be great if you shared it with a friend, rated it in the store, or just sent me a nice note. Next week, we are staying in California and getting taken to church. See you then. Climate change is real.